You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about business and innovation. This session was originally broadcast on March 2nd, 2022. Let's have a listen. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Q&A about business, innovation, and managing life. Uh, I think there are a few questions saved up or sent to us on the form. And please uh, feel free to send in whatever you'd like. Let's see, what are we going to talk about? Oh, here's one that might be easy. You know, whenever I think there's a question where it's like, I think I know the answer to that, that's easy. Turns out to be the ones that are hardest to answer. But there's one from Brady here asking, do I play any musical instruments? Would I consider songs formal systems? And then they talk about imagining a multi-way graph for chords on a guitar. That sounds like a more technical thing than I usually talk about here. But some part of that is easy to answer. I do not play any musical instruments. I, I learned piano for years when I was a kid. I think I was decent at it, but without a lot of enthusiasm for it, unfortunately. Um, it's uh, We had one experiment oh, in 2007 or so called Wolfram Tones, which was kind of an originally an idea of mine then developed by some other people at the company uh, who are more musically sophisticated than, than me. And the idea had to do with taking these simple programs that uh, uh, generate complicated behavior that I've studied for such a long time and seeing whether some of the behavior you could, whether the behavior that they generate could be something that could be turned into music uh, that would sound interesting. And the answer is, well, at least for short periods of time, yes, it's fairly interesting. I mean, the idea was very straightforward. I mean, it's basically to take these things called cellular automata, which are just you have lines of black and white cells and you're updating the color of each cell based on the color of the cell, its previous color and the colors of its neighbors. Very simple rule. The, one of my all-time favorite science discoveries is the fact that even with rules as simple as that, it's possible to get very complicated behavior, behavior that seems for many practical purposes completely random and so on, even though the underlying rule is very simple. So the question is, if you take that array of black and white dots, and you, for example, take a, a column of black and white dots or a collection of columns of black and white dots, you kind of turn it on its side and view that as a musical stave and literally play it with various kinds of arrangements, so to speak, uh, what does it sound like? And the answer is it sounds kind of interesting because there is an underlying rule. So it isn't sounding just completely random in a sense, but it isn't simple because of this phenomenon of being able to make complexity from simple rules, but it's something that is complex yet has some underlying quotes logic to it. And so it can sound kind of interesting, at least for, I don't know, five, 10, 15 seconds. By the time it's, it's dragging on into the many minutes, it, it kind of we humans expect some kind of narrative there in our music as well as perhaps in our, in our spoken communication. And that's not something you're going to get from this system. It doesn't, it doesn't generate, uh, well, it doesn't tend to generate that kind of sort of long-term quotes meaningful to us type narrative. It is generating all sorts of complexity, which in some philosophical sense is sort of abstractly meaningful, but it doesn't kind of tell a human story particularly. So, so the answer is that 
Uh, the thing that surprised me about that website, Waltham Tones, which is still up and running now, um, actually, I think it was rejiggered to use some of our more recent technology a few years ago. Um, but uh, it, the thing that I had kind of imagined was when, when it comes to people composing music, that people would say, oh, well, you know, I, the human, have all the ideas, and then maybe I let the computer do some kind of um, the more mechanical side of arranging the, the music. But actually what I've heard from people multiple times over the years from composer types is, you know, that website's interesting for getting kind of a, the, the, the core of a tune, so to speak, which then they can go on and interpret as humans. It's kind of like you could imagine, you know, a photographer going around and finding sort of this interesting image that exists in the world, but they have to kind of pick out that one and then develop from there and so on. So that's been, that's been that term. That way of doing things. You know, I personally, uh, I have to say, I, I, I'm not a listening to music kind of person because I just, I, I, I find that the things that I do, I end up really concentrating on pretty hard. And so even when I'm doing sort of responding to email and things like that, uh, when, I'm, when I'm really in a sort of slightly frustrated state, just going, you know, message by message as quickly as I can kind of thing, because there isn't really much that I need to think hard about, then just sometimes... I'll put on some music can't have vocals in it because otherwise I, I lyrics or whatever I, 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 I then I'm listening to that and I can't think about what I'm reading. I, I think I have sort of a one track mind in this respect. Um, so, but but sometimes I I find that a good way to give myself a rhythm for for going through things. But but whenever I actually have to think and write a piece of mail or or write something else, I'm like I got to pause the music because I I can't think with that with that going so to speak. So I, I'm afraid the only thing that is a terrible habit I shouldn't even admit to is is kind of whistling while I work. And I I've kind of uh, you know a few times I I've sort of been recording. Uh, doing screen recordings, which I tend to do of these kind of video work logs, which I, I, um, I don't really know why I got started doing this, but, but it's sort of a routine thing that I do to record sort of the, the, how I actually create documents and things like that. And I, you know, sometimes I forget to put on mute and then, then I've got some terrible whistling, which is, which is embarrassingly tuneless probably. Okay. In any case, um, so question here from, um, looks like some Hindi characters that I can't read. Uh, what do I think about the behavior of innovation changes with scale? That is, what is the difference in innovation between startups, small businesses, large enterprises? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting because, you know, I've tried very hard to build a company where we can do innovative things over the long term. And, you know, so far we're at 35 years and counting. Which is which is great, and I think sometimes I think the company is a little too small for some of the things we want to do. Sometimes I think it's a little too big for some of the things we want to do. It's it's challenging, and you know here here's sort of what tends to happen. I mean, companies, the way that typically companies sort of make the most money is by having sort of a machine that just keeps doing something and it doesn't have to think too much. It just keeps doing something because thinking, so to speak, tends to be, unless you, you know, that, that's the challenge is to make the thinking part be something that is part of the rhythm of what the company does. So it doesn't end up being sort of super expensive to do because anytime you're doing something that is kind of not what you normally do, that propagates, you know, all the way up the management hierarchy because somebody's got to, either it dies 
it dies somewhere you know, deep in the company, and that happens very often in companies, um, or it kind of has to propagate up to the level of somebody who can actually make the decision to do something different from what's been being what's being done now, so to speak. So I think uh, you know, and the issue with startups tends to be that uh, there's certain kinds of innovation that you can do that require only very small scale. There's some other things where the people sort of doing the innovation are also doing at a very small startup scale, are also doing much of the kind of mechanical work that's needed to get anything to happen. And that kind of prevents them from sort of having the time to put into innovation in the same kind of way. And the other issue with startups tends to be, if one's lucky, if one could do a startup as, as I was able to do 35 years ago, where you don't take outside investment money and so on, and you're kind of just sort of responsible to yourself and your customers and, and so on. Um, and uh, But very often with sort of typical startups, um, you're, you know, you've taken investment money and the investors have ideas about what you should do. And there's, there's sort of a often complicated tension in, uh, in kind of what, uh, what, what what they want you to do, what you think you might want to do, the incredible innovative idea that you have, but the investors say that's way too far out there. Please don't spend our money on that type thing. Um, you know, there tends to be forces uh, acting towards kind of against innovation as soon as one's dealing with, well, you know, uh, just, just do the thing that seems like everybody else is doing. That's much safer. You won't lose our money that way, so to speak. So, I think that's um, when, when it gets to very large companies, um, there's a huge challenge in getting innovative things done. And that's why so many large companies essentially do most of their innovation by buying smaller companies. Um, in some industries like the pharma industry, that's, that's super common. Um, it's become fairly common in the software industry as well. I think that um, uh, it's, it's challenging. For example, a company of our scale, you know, 800 people or something, the, the, um, uh, we, um, uh, you know, doing sort of innovative new things uh, is, is challenging. So here's the issue. The issue is people are doing their jobs. They're often working very hard at their jobs. Their jobs involve going in a particular direction, building some particular product, you know, tending some particular product line that has been successful. When it comes to kind of doing something new and different, it's like, that's nobody's job, particularly. So it ends up often coming from me in our, in our company. You know, I think there's an interesting opportunity in this or that direction. Let's go and pursue that. And then it's often a, quite a challenge because people say, no, 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 we can't do that. We're doing this thing that is our main job. And this is the thing we're supposed to be doing. And look, it's being successful. Don't pull us off to this thing that is very speculative, where you know where it probably isn't going to be successful because most speculative things, one might imagine, aren't successful. You know, let us keep going on the, on the main thing we're doing. And what I've done to try and deal with that is to kind of have a special projects group. Although I, I think I've said in, in these live streams before, one of the things that's tended to happen with our special projects group is that it's too successful in the sense that it does a, quote, special project, and then that project becomes a larger scale thing, and the people in that special projects group get pulled into the kind of mainstream product development for that successful product, and, and you know everybody there is, is happy. But that means that one isn't having this kind of uh, special project that's going to do the thing that was off the beaten track um, going, going forward. 
So, I mean, that, that's, that's one of my sort of approaches to getting sort of innovative things done in a company, for example, of our scale, is to, is to successively kind of, in a sense, spin off these special project groups uh, that will do things that are usually initiated by me um, and usually kind of tracked quite closely by me um, that are kind of trying to do new, new kinds of things. I think that um, uh, there are large companies that try to have sort of innovation groups or research labs or whatever. Um, often the big challenge there is even if something amazing gets discovered in the research lab, getting it ingested back into the company is really hard because people say, this is an amazing invention. Uh, is it going to make us $5 billion? If no, we don't have a, a mechanism to sort of ingest it into the main part of our company. And that's something certainly famously happened with, well, Xerox Park uh, to, um, uh, to some extent with uh, Bell Labs did better on that, but certainly had innovations where, where that was um, uh, what happened with them and so on. So it's a challenging thing. And I think that the, uh, I would say that um, uh, it, it takes a lot of forcefulness to get innovation done uh, within companies because there is a lot, there's a lot of kind of um, uh, pushback against that by, by virtue of the fact that sort of the natural selection of what the company should do is things that aren't particularly innovative, but are things that have been done before, but they're a machine that is commercially successful. I suppose in, in our particular company, I'm sufficiently motivated to do new and innovative things that I have kind of traded off sort of commercial, uh, greater commercial success of our company for the ability to have some degree of agility to do innovative kinds of things. And, and that in practice, you know, it sort of turns into a large fraction of our employees are R&D employees. And um, uh, that's, uh, that's kind of where uh, the focus has been. And also we've kind of developed a culture where people do come to expect that we will do new things. I mean, there was a time in the history of our company where we've been sort of doing the same thing for about a decade. I'd been off doing something rather different, but the company had been sort of our main product, Mathematica at that time, was uh, uh, sort of the main thing. And when I sort of came back from doing my big, in that case, basic science project, and really started focusing on, on uh, sort of what were the next steps for the company, it was something where it took real effort to turn that ship, so to speak, in the direction of, uh, of new and different things. And as a matter of fact, that Wolf and Tones project that I mentioned, that was kind of a goofy project in many ways, was very helpful in turning, well, it was helpful in some ways in turning the ship. It was helpful in the sense that it made people say, oh, we can do fun and interesting stuff that isn't just the mainline product we're doing. And that was helpful both internally and for some recruiting. It was unhelpful in terms of our management because people looked at it and said, we don't make any, we didn't make any money from that. Why did we do that? And, and that was uh, you know, when the next sort of special project, in that case was basically Wolfram Alpha, came along. I kind of had to hide that project because people were otherwise going to say, it's just like Wolfram Tones, we're not going to make any money from it. So that was uh, that, that's kind of how that challenge works. Uh, um, Oligaz asks, do I have electronics off daytime window? No electronic communication, no computers. Computers are my friends. Um, no, I, I really, I, I'm, uh, I'm very much a computers on pretty much all the time, except, you know, Except when I'm talking to people, I'm talking to people, and I'm not 
kind of uh, you know distracted looking at a computer. I mean, I I I, I guess maybe I'm a I'm a poor multitasker. So if I'm actually talking to somebody, if I kind of glance over to look at you know some some message or something, it's really obvious, and it's kind of like like I'm really not. Uh, and people who work with me a lot kind of can tell, like at the end of some meeting when when we're really pretty much winding down, and I'm obviously off thinking about something else. It's like they can instantly tell I'm just not paying attention. So I, I tend to be I'm either you know paying attention to the person I'm talking to or I'm not. Um, in terms of of uh, uh, you know, I, I do tend to. I use email. I don't use texting, for example, to any significant extent. I only use it for kind of uh, sort of the the instant, the few instant messages that come through, so to speak. I don't use it as kind of an alternative channel. I don't tend to use uh, uh, internal um, uh, messaging systems at our company and so on very much. I tend to be very much an email-oriented person, and I get hundreds of emails every day. And uh, you know, it's a complicated and, and time-consuming activity to kind of grind those down. And uh, you know, quite often I'll get emails um, that you know will take. I mean, I, I just responded. I have to say, with some embarrassment, to an email that I should have responded to a long time ago that was from 2008. Um, and uh, uh, you know, what tends to happen is I, I will go through every day emails that I can respond to quickly, and then there'll be this kind of pileup of, of older ones, and I kind of have a whole process for trying to get through all of those. Um, I think that um, uh, for me, something with more urgency than email, um, you know, apart from very s- sort of uh, scheduling-oriented things, doesn't doesn't work well for me. That would I would find that very... Uh, hard for me to really concentrate with. You know, I, I spend a fair amount of my time just actually working on, well, for example, science or other kinds of uh, sort of innovation technology kinds of things and and writing things and so on. And uh, uh, for those things, I'll, I'll just, you know, I'll be sitting and writing and doing my thing and I don't want to be interrupted. You know, I, I don't have, uh, you know, I never get phone calls. I, I don't even know my own phone number, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't get sort of incoming phone calls, um, uh, you know, in, 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 in the normal course of, of, of events. And uh, I tend to, you know, when I'm, I, I know that certain kinds of activities, it's going to take me a couple of hours to really, it doesn't make sense for me to do it unless I have a couple of hours available to sit and do it, and then I'll be doing it. And, you know, uh, they have enough concentration on that on that activity that I won't be glancing over and looking at my email. I know if I do that, that uh, it's kind of like, it's a sign that I'm not really concentrating on what I'm, what I'm doing. And, and usually I think I'll go for, I don't know how long it is. I should measure it. I, I certainly have the data to know this, but my impression is probably about an hour and a half, a couple of hours that I can kind of do a, a one sitting. I'm just doing this. I'm just thinking about this thing. I'm just, you know, figuring something out. I'm just writing some piece of, of orphan language code or whatever else. Um, and then, you know, after that, I'll kind of um, uh, take a break for a few minutes and maybe I'll look at some email. Maybe I, I find it sort of satisfying. Email is one of these things where it's like in just a few minutes, you know, you can grind down a few pieces of email. You can respond to a few things. You can think through a few things and make responses and such like. And it's a, it's a good kind of filler activity. And that's what I, how I tend to use it. So I, I tend to, you know, have these periods of concentration where, yes, I'm, I suppose I'm off electronics. Although I'm sitting at a computer doing, doing things with a computer, like writing, writing code or whatever, but I'm not, 
uh, sort of in the uh, being interrupted by electronics uh, all that time. Um, but I don't, uh, uh, you know, my, my, um, uh, I, uh, yeah, that, that, that's, that's my uh, practice with this. Parmenides is asking, how do I deal with back pain and eye strain from reading too much? You know, I, I've been, uh, you know, I'm sort of, uh, uh, I get a decent office chair. I tend to, uh, one thing I've done, this is perhaps a useful thing, is like put your monitors up fairly high. So you're not kind of always, you know, sort of leaning over to, um, uh, uh, to read your, your, your down low monitor. I think that's a thing that um, uh, us humans were probably not, you know, back when we were evolved to go hunt woolly mammoths and so on. The idea of looking down at your laptop wasn't a thing. And so I don't think that's a, um, I, I think over, over the years, I sort of, uh, you know, as many people do who, who um, you know, I, I had not kind of figured that out this point until maybe 10, five, 10 years ago, that, you know, put your monitors up fairly high so that you are not crouched over all the time. And then, you know, I don't get back pain. And, uh, uh, you know, perhaps I've, I've been fortunate in that respect, but um, uh, that's one thing. Um, in terms of, um, uh, I'm, I, I fortunately so far have, have fairly decent eyesight, um, although I, I've tended to, um, you know, I wear glasses, although my, my children are always giving me a hard time because, you know, I can read perfectly well without them most of the time. And, you know, I, uh, you know, got my driving license without them and all those kinds of things. But um, uh, I tend to be enough of a perfectionist that I've tried to figure out, you know, exactly, you know, what strength of glasses, how much astigmatism and so on, so that I can kind of uh, do as some, uh, um, you know, so, so it works as well as possible. And actually, one of the little bit of a hacks that I've, I've done is, you know, because I'm an ancient guy, I have multifocal glasses, which, you know, change their focus as you, as you tip your head. And I've got it so that, uh, when I'm, you know, at the computer, I can't be kind of down with my with my head drooping down because I wouldn't be able to read the screen because I've arranged it so that you know I end up having to to look fairly straight ahead um, in order to be reading the screen at the right distance for my glasses and so on. So it's sort of a, a silly little hack, but but I also you know I have a kind of one of these desks that you you know press a button and it raises itself up and and occasionally I'll I'll do that. If I'm feeling like, oh, I've been sitting for too long, uh, let me let me um, uh, let me let me stand for a while, and, and that seems to work fairly well for kind of keeping me from being completely um, uh, immobile. Um, it's uh, um, the um, uh, I think um, yeah no I, I, actually another thing I have to say um, the um, uh, uh, you know, same, same kind of thing with my car. I, I put some effort into figuring out, oh, you know, there's a, uh, you know, you put the steering wheel and the, and the seat and the this and that and the other. How do you actually arrange it so that you're not, so that you're sitting in a reasonable configuration when you're driving? Um, and uh, it was not actually super intuitive to me what that should be. And it took some effort and thinking and, and, uh, and so on to, to sort that out. Um, and it probably not not that I've driven very much in the last couple of years, and I, I am um, I I but uh, um, that's that's another thing. Um, let's see. Uh, it's a question from Juan here. If you started your business again, what would you avoid or do differently? You know, this was 
my current company, which I've been running for the last 35 years, is kind of my second company, a second substantial company. Um, the first one I kind of uh, started when I was like 21 years old, and I had other people involved. I brought in a CEO. I had venture capital investors and so on. And I wasn't, I mean, for me, that was just like, well, it was a thing, but I didn't really, the things that I really felt passionate about, really, it didn't, you know, it was hard to put passion into that company after sort of too many other people were involved doing all kinds of other things I didn't necessarily agree with and so on. I think the thing that is important about at least the company I've, I've been running for a long time is that, you know, I really care about what we do. I put a lot of effort into what we do. Um, I care about the people we have. I care about the customers we have. It's, it's something where I actually, uh, you know, it, it's something I, I really care about and that's, that's really good. And, you know, one of the questions is then, can you avoid sort of the things that are frustrating and that were sort of bad ideas and so on? I would say that um, uh, generally not too many mistakes made in our current uh, uh, company. I suppose that some of the mistakes, um, uh, you know, one of the questions is why are people working at your company? Are they there because they want to make a bunch of money? Are they there because they care about the products? Are they there because for some other reason, because of people and so on? And, you know, our company has been, you know, we've been respectably commercially successful, but the company is not, it's, I would say our primary mission is to do interesting things and build interesting stuff and, and be useful to the world, not so much maximize you know the amount of, of money and profit and so on that we've made. And so one of the things that I think is is important and where I didn't do too badly at this, but I had a few glitches with this, is you know, have people involved in your company who in the end are going to be aligned with the with the true mission of the company. Um, and uh, uh, I would say there was some there was some teething problems with that. Um, but uh, uh, and that's one thing that it's it's so hard to predict. I mean, if you'd asked me when I started my current company, you know, what would it what would happen with it five ten years in the future? I would, uh, you know, I, I really wanted to start a company that was building intellectual property and was not building the whole apparatus to do all of the distribution and uh, marketing and sales and so on and so on and so on. Uh, for sort of raw intellectual property, that's not how it has actually worked out. You know, we've ended up being sort of the, the full uh, vertically integrated thing of all those pieces. Um, and uh, so, you know, that, that was, and there were things that, that there were sort of minor mistakes that got made as a result of the assumption about kind of what the company would be like in the future. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, those are, those are things where, where if you can avoid, you know, you have some vision for what the company is going to be like in the future. You set up your, you know, stocker agreements. You set up this and that and the other based on that. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, to the extent that you can be kind of um, uh, neutral in terms of what's going to happen in the future, that's always, in my experience, that's a good thing because you actually don't know what's going to happen in the future. And if you kind of have implicitly or explicitly made some assumption that turns out to be wrong, there's some sort of mess that will develop from trying to bring those two things together. Let's see. Um, 
There's a question from GZB about elimination of jobs and how I think society will cope with mass unemployment after we automate the majority of, of trade-related jobs. You know, this whole question about where the jobs go is, it's an interesting one. A number of years ago, I tried to look at the data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and its predecessors in the US. I think there's data going back to the 1850s or so. Uh, yeah, in fact, I know it goes back to the 1850s, um, but to right before the Civil War, um, that uh, uh, give you know the number of people employed in this uh, um, in this profession and that profession and so on. And I tried to the, the the nature of the professions has changed over time. There are job categories which I'd never even heard of that existed in in you know 1880 and so on. Um, but I tried to kind of line up what were the you know, uh, in, in slightly bigger buckets, what were the trends that had existed in in um, in the U.S. for employment? And what do you see? Well, you see agriculture. You know, the, the U.S. was a very agriculturally oriented country back in the 1850s. That goes way down. Um, you see other things come up. You see uh, things related to municipal kinds of activities, government and so on. That goes up. Education goes up. Healthcare goes up. Um, the uh, um, things, um, what other kinds of things? Manufacturing was um, kind of went up, but went down, but not so much, not as much as one might have, not as much as I had thought. Construction was a big uh, component that I think remained fairly constant. Now, you know, I think that what, what is always interesting about sort of jobs and what there is to do is that it just seems like there's always a new niche there's always something where people said, really, you can make a living being a professional, you know, video game player. Oh, you can, you know, make a living being, um, doing some kind of uh, very kind of human related, uh, you know, being a, a um, uh, I don't know, a, 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 a remote driver of, uh, you know, of, of delivery robots or, of, uh, or, or a wrangler of um, uh, this or that kind of thing. Um, uh, it, it's, um, it is strange how there always seem to be new niches coming up. And I think there's a, sort of a question sometimes of, well, sometimes, for example, one of the things that one sees is, oh, these niches tend to be in these more computer-oriented areas, for example, in a country like the US. And, uh, you know, maybe they're in, who knows, cybersecurity, they're in this, they're in that. And, and you say, uh, you know, what does that mean for, for who can do this? But you know, another thing that's happening is through uh, sort of if you have skill that is very human oriented, very, you know, empath empathetic um, kind of skill and, and you're not particularly techie oriented, this doesn't mean that, oh, because there's a job that involves a computer that you can't do it. I mean, the, the efforts of people like myself and many, many others uh, in, in the kind of tech world is make computers so that so that they are convenient for humans to use and not require that anybody who touches a computer has to have kind of the PhD in computer science kind of thing. Um, and, and that's kind of a, so that means that the, you know, even though it might look as if there's a job where, oh, you have to know how to touch a computer. Well, everybody pretty much knows how to touch a computer now. And we're going to lots of effort to make it easier and easier to do things with computers. Um, and so that allows kind of a skill that isn't, you know, the techie skill to be done even when the thing in the middle is, is something to do with a computer. And I think, so I'm, I'm much less convinced 
that kind of the humans are out of the loop, so to speak. I, I think I, I did try to figure out, I, I, I was going to write something about kind of the future of jobs, but I have to say I was a bit confused by the data because I couldn't really conclude very much from this data. You know, I, I wondered there's certain kinds of jobs that are, uh, well, for example, jobs that involve humans interacting with humans. It seems to matter to humans to have humans in the loop for some kinds of things. I don't know whether it's teaching, whether it's sales, whether it's uh, uh, various kinds of you know, uh, therapy, counseling, medical kinds of things. Uh, us humans care about having humans in the loop in those kinds of places, or seem to. There are some corners where actually we kind of prefer to have a computer. Maybe it's easier to answer questions about some medical thing to a computer than to a human, I'm not sure. But there are also places where it does seem we, we like to have humans in the loop. And I think sometimes there are things that can get done that uh, are, are doable because of technology, but they still need a human interface, as in a human there, to really do the last sort of step in, in having things happen. So I'm, I'm less convinced that kind of all the jobs are going to go away and people are going to... Uh, uh, just, uh, you know, be able to uh, to kind of sit back and let the robots run things. Now, I think it probably is the case that certain aspects of how the world works, it is possible to automate those, and, and we've already seen that. I mean, the fact that the the kind of standard of living, the, the, the expectations that people have about sort of what they can do on a daily basis and what kind of, uh, you know, comforts they can have on a daily basis have gone dramatically up over the years. And that's largely a consequence of technology and the, you know, big stack of automation that exists. And I think that, um, uh, but to to then conclude that, so, so that means that a bunch of things that were kind of, oh, you know, somebody actually had to go and, uh, oh, I don't know what, you know, add up the numbers by hand for some clerical job. Um, that's, you know, that's not a thing anymore. Um, but that doesn't mean that there's, uh, the, the, so that, that layer has been automated. I mean, it's sort of reminiscent of the question in education. You know, as we know more as a society, doesn't that mean that we kind of have to, uh, that there's just more and more and more to learn and people would have to sort of be in school until they're 50 years old in order to know all the stuff. Well, that doesn't happen. Uh, one of the main reasons is because of automation, because, you know, there are tools even, I've been involved in building that take things which people would otherwise have to learn. Oh, how do we do this? Well, how do we do it by hand? You just use a computer um, and use our tools to, you know, to solve those problems and you never have to learn how to do those by hand. Um, and similarly, in, well, in education, there's another dynamic, which is as fields progress, there ends up being sort of a more abstract understanding of things. So you don't have to learn as many of the details. But I think that's sort of the same kind of thing. Now, now when it comes to, uh, so I, I mean, I, I would say that I'm, perhaps I'm an optimist, but I would say that, that several things are, are true about, about jobs. One is that they're going to be new niches. There are always new niches. There are always, uh, you know, you look at over the last 150 years, there's a dramatic collection of new niches. There are some niches that go away, uh, largely through automation, but new niches come up. The other thing is, but what about the people who, you know, aren't the, the best, you know, math kids in school and so on? You know, what will they do? I think that a lot of the need for humans has to do with, for example, more human kinds of jobs 
for which being the best math kid in school is absolutely irrelevant and perhaps even of negative value in some in, in, in terms of typical personalities. So I'm I'm uh, I'm not convinced that um, uh, I think that there can be a certain people sometimes will say, oh, but you know if it involves computers, what will happen to all these people who are uh, you know who aren't technically sophisticated? And I would say, as I, as I was saying, I mean that that um, uh, that you know we in the world of technology uh, sort of are trying to make it so that the humans can really do what the humans are best at. And that allows opportunities for, for lots of people. So I'm, I'm, not, um, um, I'm not expecting that there'll be no place for the humans. Now, will it be possible, uh, you know, that there are, there are all these complicated discussions about, um, uh, uh, you know, should, okay, so another thing to say is there are parts of the world where there are just great natural resources, uh, where basically there's ways to make money in the world, so to speak, by just mining those natural resources. And in a sense, the, uh, there's sort of a, a bit of a free ride that's available as a result of that. And there's sort of a question of, is automation the free ride for the world? That is, the mining of, I don't know, you know, you have oil, you have uh, some mineral resources or whatever um, that um, can give you kind of the, uh, there's, you know, you don't put anything in, it's just sitting there in the ground and you can mine it and then sell it in the world market, so to speak. And, and that's sort of a bit of a free ride. The question is in the computational universe of, for example, possible programs, is there sort of a similar, perhaps an exhaustible kind of mining supply there that can, in a sense, provide some prosperity to everybody because it's accessible to everybody? And that's an interesting question. And that's, a, that's ultimately a question of economics, I think, and a question of, of sort of, uh, you know, there's the general impression that the, the sort of the GDP of the world, the value of the world, has, has gone up and up over time. And there's a question of sort of how to characterize that. Why does it happen? I suppose one sort of understanding of that would be uh, if you imagine things you might want to do, then there's the question of, of does how hard is it to do that? How sort of expensive is it to do those things? And in a sense, if there is more intrinsic value in the world, the set of things that can be done in some, uh, in, in some way is, has expanded, and that's, that's maybe some kind of operational measure of sort of the increase of value of the world. But I think that's, um, uh, you know, the, the, that, that, that goes back to, um, you know, does automation probably increases the sort of value of the world and it increases sort of the comfort level for typical people in the world just because there are things we'd otherwise have to worry about, you know, I don't know, when I was a kid, I was on the tail end of, you know, using ink pens and having to fill your pen from an ink reservoir and things like this. Uh, yeah, I mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, that hasn't been a thing from a, for a long time. And occasionally, you know, an ink pen would explode and you'd get ink all over yourself and, and things like this. You know, that's become easier over time. Similarly, you know, it, it's, uh, I don't know, you know, things like cars have become, you know, you, you have to know a lot less about the workings of a car to, to use a car these days and so on. So, I mean, th those things are, are perhaps reflections of, of the effect of, um, uh, of automation and so on. Let's see, a question from Ed here. How did I manage the sales side when I started the uh, first company? Um, my first company, I brought in a CEO. 
So it was sort of their job to manage things like sales. I would say that I got a little bit more involved than I would have liked to. And then was, um, uh, uh, it, um, uh, I was sort of frustrated actually because I felt that, this is a long time ago now, I mean, this is 40, 40 years ago now, um, that uh, uh, there were things that were sort of obvious to do and we weren't doing them. And I think in retrospect, I was probably right. Um, in my current company, you know, one of the important decisions I made was not to be in terribly involved in sales. Um, in fact, to be as uninvolved as possible, because the thing that tends to happen to sort of uh, kind of, I don't know, vision-oriented founders, so to speak, is they spend all their time sort of doing sales and interacting with customers and, uh, and, and sort of uh, promoting the product, so to speak. And I just didn't want to do that. Uh, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a life calculation that I wanted to make. And so I am... Um, uh, I think that the, um, uh, you know, what I was perfectly happy to do was to kind of broadcast all the great things about our product, as I as I still do to some extent, um, and uh, I should probably do it more in these live streams than I do. Um, but uh, uh, it's it's one of these things where you know the, the whole sort of computational language that that we've built is is something that is tremendously valuable to the world and to, to lots and lots of people and organizations. Many people know that, but vastly more people should know that than actually do know that. And it's something where I have to say after sort of 30 something years of trying to explain that point, um, it does get a little old for, for somebody like me. But in any case, I, I um, uh, it's, um, uh, it's one of these things where you know, you know, in 50 years, everybody will say, yeah, that really was, you know, that, that's amazing stuff. It's like, why didn't we pay attention to this earlier? Well, some people, plenty of people did, but it's it's still, it's kind of like, uh, uh, there's sort of this inexorability to these things, but it's, it's let you, you, you know, you push, you push. And, and I could spend all my time doing that. And I could spend all my time sort of on the front lines, actually interacting with customers. I do that basically not at all. Um, the, uh, uh, now, uh, it's, um, and I'm not sure the, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, when I, the first few rounds of sales folk I had at the company were, well, okay, they were pretty good. Um, I would say that the, um, uh, um, one of the issues with sales, sales teams, in my experience at least, is there's sort of two directions of selling. There's the sales team is selling out to the customer but they're also selling management on, you know, oh, we're doing a great job type thing. Or, oh, that didn't sell because the product was no good or because the pricing was wrong or something like that, rather than that didn't sell because we didn't put enough effort into selling it. So, you know, there's there's a sort of multi-sided market that tends to develop with, with sales folk. And it's, uh, it's great if you can find people where you kind of have um, uh, enough trust and rapport with them that that doesn't happen. I mean, it's, it's always, you know, when you hear from salespeople, oh, you know, we should decrease the price. Uh, it's kind of like, yeah, whatever. You know, it, it's um, uh, when you hear from them, we should increase the price. That's often a good thing to hear, so to speak. It's like, look, people really like this. We can, we can make more money from it. Um, that's, you know, that's a good thing. But um, uh, I would say that uh, um, in terms of, I mean, the, the one thing 
Okay, so so in our company, we have tended to have at least sales management that is very enthusiastic about our product, knows our product, is really uh, you know cares about it, has some uh, you know has a has a real personal interest in it, rather than I know sales, I can do sales. Uh, you know, I just turn the crank. I'm a salesperson. That's what I do. It tends to be more like I'm a person who knows how to do sales and is very serious about doing that, but also is um, is somebody who is very much uh, uh, involved in and committed to our product. Now, I mean, another thing to understand about sales is that it is, in the end, a quite procedural kind of thing. That is, if you say to a sales team, We've got this new product. Nobody understands how what it is. Go sell it. It's not going to work. That's not what a sales team does. It's you know that's for some kind of business development, marketing kind of kind of effort. It's once you know, once you've sold it a bunch of you know, once a bunch of people have got it for whatever reason, then it's like the sales team is all at least in my experience is all about okay, who are the you know the thousand other customers who are kind of like those customers where the same value that it had to the, the first few customers, it will also have to the subsequent ones, go and make that presentation, go and communicate that, go and close those sales. I mean, that that's some, and at any time one has to do sort of R&D in the sales department. Uh, you know, I just don't think that's what the typical sort of rhythm of sales is about, and it tends not to work. Um, and for, for us, for example, when we have new products that are being, sort of introduced, it's a challenging thing to sort of get them to the point where they have a decent amount of momentum. And then you can sort of turn them over to the sales team once it's clear what you're actually supposed to do with them. You know, while it's like, this is the first customer, you've got to really figure out what, what, what's going on. Now, now, often for us, for example, our solutions and consulting organizations tend to be the ones who are doing that it's the first time something like this has ever been done and they you know get that to the point where it's defined and then after that's defined and after there's some understanding of how those customers work then one can turn it over to to kind of a sales activity um i would say though that that uh, uh in answer to ed's question here that that you know everybody who runs a company is probably better at some things than at others you know, I kind of specialize in in the sort of strategy, innovation, uh, product, content more so than I do the commercial side of the business. And perhaps the commercial side of our business would do better if I was, you know, knew more about it, paid more attention to it, and so on. I mean, I think that that um, uh, it's uh, say the, the only thing I would say about about particularly for startups and things, it's like. Uh, you know, you often will, the first few sales will have to be done by somebody who is more about understanding the product than about the process of selling. They've got to have the tenacity to make the sale, the tenacity to close the thing, but not, it's not, in my experience, the kind of wheel in, just sort of uh, generic salesperson is not, uh, is not the right kind of person to have in sort of the early stages of, of we're just uh, trying to invent what we're doing. Let's see. Um, there's a question from Magic. If, if I were to go back in time, would I be able to like single-handedly get the world to 2020 type technology within 20 years? 
absolutely not. If you go, I mean, the our technological world has such a complicated, essentially, supply chain of stuff that it is it is not uh, whatever the leadership, whatever the knowledge. There's just it is you know the work of many different pieces and and people and organizations and so on to build all the different layers that are needed to go from you know mining the raw you know whatever it is material into making the innovations the 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 um you know building building the computers building you know laying all the fiber optic cables uh, all those kinds of things it's it's a it's a hugely um uh, you know it's it's the achievement of our civilization and it's a um uh, it's a huge number of people that have been involved in that and just knowing a certain amount isn't really enough i mean just uh kind of you know knowing in theory uh how i mean i would say that that for myself if somebody says you're back in time go make a laptop it's like there isn't a chance there's you know even though i might know some decent number of the principles involved it's like uh, the actual process of building up the engineering practice and the, and the facilities and so on is, is, uh, is undoable there, I would say. It's, it's really a, a collective achievement. Let's see. Um, there's a question here from William. Uh, when AIs can simulate reality, indistinguishably from reality, uh, can you just simulate people doing jobs? That, that's, you know, that's the avatars question. It's kind of like, like, do you need a human telling you, you know, as a teacher or as a, um, uh, uh, you know, as a as a kind of um, uh, therapist or, or whatever else? Do you need a person, or is it is it enough to have an avatar of a person? You know, I have this feeling that it will be challenging to get people to accept the idea of avatars. I think that there's a certain psychology that we have, at least right now. Maybe it will change that the very commitment of another human, so to speak, involved in something has an effect on our uh, sort of response to that. That is the fact that you know, you know you're know, you flying on a plane and you know there's an actual person who is uh, putting, you know, they're in it with you, so to speak. That's important. Um, and I think similarly, it's like there's a person who is trying to you know, lead in some way. It, it's important that they are kind of um, uh, there responding to you and making a commitment to be there, so to speak. Um, you know, I, I think that's I think that's important to our psychology, and I, I don't think that's a thing that will go easily, so to speak. Uh, you know, in in a case there may be some situations in which people will be happily talking to a bot, and it doesn't matter to them that there's no sort of committed human at the other end. Um, but I think that uh, that the way our psychology is today. And I, I see it also going forward. It will be important that it's kind of a human at the other end, so to speak. Um, let's see. There's a question here from Magic asking, do I think people should specialize in education earlier instead of taking general classes, focus on one field, get to undergraduate education earlier? You know, I think that's decreasingly the right strategy in the world as it is today. Uh, I think that the one of the things that is uh, perhaps uh, you know people have gone very much into this there are many fields where there's a tall tower of stuff to learn you know just climb that tower ignore everything else i think that's increasingly kind of a mistake because i think many of the jobs and particularly the new niches that open up 
it's kind of like, well, it's a, it's a different factoring of capabilities that wasn't the particular tower that got built when you happened to be in school or had already been built when you happened to be in school. And knowing about a bunch of these different things makes one much more able to flexibly sort of uh, be successful in that in the new niche that exists. I mean, I, I see that, um, oh gosh, I mean, in, uh, you know, I, th I think one of the areas, uh, yeah, I think the, this, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in, okay, so when I was in the education system a long time ago in England, went to kind of good schools and so on, um, you know, I did resent learning all of those extra things about, you know, history and languages and Latin and Greek and things like this. And it was like, why am I doing this? I'll never need this for the rest of my life. This is all irrelevant. Well, I was wrong. You know, I, I, you know, even the Latin and Greek, I routinely am using either because I'm thinking about some technical field and, you know, all the words are Latin derived. And like, because I happen to know Latin, it's like I can decode that biological, you know, that bio type word because I know the Latin roots. And I, you know, so I, it's easy for me to figure out what it means. Um, or because I'm making up some name for something, you know, it's, it's, I, I, I care about those kinds of things. I, I never would have predicted that when I was a kid. I also feel that um, uh, some of the things, you know, I, uh, in my education, at least ended up writing, you know, lots of essays about all kinds of things, um, including many things that I would say, I don't, you know, I really don't care about that topic. Um, I, I didn't then, and I, I don't particularly care now, but the, the um, kind of the, the effort to write those essays and things, you know, I, I learned how to be, I think, a decent writer. Um, and uh, that was um, that was a pretty useful thing, even though you might think in what I do for a living, well, I do do a lot of writing, so it's kind of obvious that that matters, but you might have imagined, you know, you're gonna do science, technology, whatever, you know, oh, knowing how to write a good English essay is not relevant, but turns out, turns out it is. Um, and, and so I, and I think, you know, the, the, the big problem with a lot of today's education is that it is, uh, I don't know, education, you know, to lead out using Latin roots, um, the, uh, uh, to, to sort of, it, it's like what, uh, you know, there's one thing to have a particular skill where you know how to do this one thing, turning this one crank to do this one particular thing. It's another skill to know how to think about things, even if you've never done that particular thing before. And I'm a little disappointed, I would say, with quite a lot of the way that education tends to be working today, of people are sort of very, uh, you know, uh, collimated into these very particular, yes, I can do this one thing. I know how to be a, you know, a JavaScript programmer, or I know how to do this particular, uh, you know, this particular function here. Um, and um, it, it's, uh, I think that's disappointing for the people themselves. And I think it's disappointing for society and it's certainly disappointing for employers and so on, because that's that's not the place where people end up being the most valuable. Now, you know, it um, uh, and, and I would say that the um, uh, this uh, I mean, the other thing that tends to happen is people have optimized the education process to the point where, you know, if you want to fit in to be, you know, the MBA working at a company of this type. It's like there's this, you know, veneer that you can get that will make you be a fit in those things, at least at the superficial level. And, you know, education has been sort of optimized to put in place these kinds of, uh, at least these kinds of sort of 
veneers of fitting into some existing structure that, you know, oh, you know how this kind of structure works. You know, you can fit into an agile programming team or something because you've learned that kind of structure, uh, you're off and running. Um, you know, I, I think that that tends to create a very fragile situation where people have just this very, you know, this, this veneer. And then when things change or real thought is required, it's kind of like, oh, oh, well, I never thought about thinking type thing. And, and I think one of the sad things is that most, I would say, a lot of kids sort of go into education being perfectly well able to think about all sorts of things. But then they're told, no, in education, it's all about just, you know, get the best test scores, you know, be able to do this exercise as well as possible. It's all kind of this procedural thing. And I suppose that the, you know, my own feeling is, and maybe I'm prejudiced from my own life because I'm not, uh, you know, I like thinking about things that haven't been thought about before and so on. Um, I think that this kind of proceduralization of everything, you know, you just learn this series of, of steps, you know, to run a business, you do A, B, and C. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, I think that, that, um, uh, that that's a shame for the people doing it. And it's a brittle thing for, for sort of uh, people people on the outside. Now, you know, I will say another thing about education. I'm a great believer in learning what you care about. And I would say that it's a pity if I were to kind of go back now and be exposed to the same sort of education kinds of things that I was when I was a kid, I would be much more enthusiastic about many of those things. Well, actually, I probably wouldn't because I'd probably be saying, but I've got all these projects I want to do. And that's what, I, that's what happened at the time. It's like, you know, I was, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years old or something. And it's like, I've got all these projects I want to do. They have to do with physics and things like that. Why am I learning Latin and Greek? You know, I want to spend the minimum time doing this. Um, but, uh, uh, and, and probably if you took me as I am right now with, I've got all these projects I want to do, you know, and transported me back, I, I probably would be as, as, uh, as frustrated a, a, as I was then. But still, in terms of the, what I would find interesting, uh, you know, lots of those things I would, I would now find much more interesting, you know, learning different kinds of history and so on, which I have subsequently gotten interested in. Um, but I would say that as, so long as you are interested in things, it's, it's like, it's really a win to do as general education as possible. If you if it's a horrible grind and there's this one thing you're unbelievably interested in and you only want to do that, then maybe it's okay to concentrate on that. But if it's like, I should concentrate on this because that's going to optimize my future career uh, prospects or whatever, I think that's a mistake. I think that's a, um, you know, people can sometimes see if I do this particular skills-based thing, then I will set myself up to fit into this slot. Now, I, I mean, I, I should qualify this a bit because there are plenty of professions where you're going to learn some, some skills, some trade, and that's what you're going to do. And that's a great job. And, you know, maybe that's where you'll get most of the fulfillment in your life. Maybe it will be outside of that job, but that's, that's a, you know, if, if there is such a thing, then that's a fine thing to do. But I would say that people who are like, uh, you know, I'm going to go to the fanciest elite schools and so on. I think that by the time you're doing that uh, and you're saying, but I'm going to specialize in this one thing that, that I'm going to do because it gives me the best job prospects. That's a mistake. If there's this one thing you want to specialize in because it's the thing you're unbelievably passionate about and, you know, this, these great professors are there who you're going to work with and you're going to become, you know, kind of, you're going to accelerate in that particular area. Well, fair enough. 
But if you're saying, but I'm going to specialize in, you know, computer science because I want to get a job as a programmer, or I'm going to specialize in whatever, um, it's, uh, you know, because I'm going to get a job in that, even though, well, I'm not really that excited about it, but it's a good place to get a job. That's a shame if you have to do that, or if you do do that. And I, and I tend to think that one is much better off having a, a more general education, uh, so long as one can is going to pay attention to it. I mean, one of the things that that I have to say sometimes drives me crazy is is I'll you know I'll talk to people and they'll say you know I say do you know about this? They say well yes I did a class about that you know three years ago. And they ask them something oh well of course I've forgotten everything about it. That class was three years ago. And it's like what do you mean? You know things I learned fifty years ago I can still remember pretty well. At least the things that I cared sort of at all about. There are things that I really didn't retain because I really didn't care enough about them. Uh, even the things I didn't care that much about, I, I, you know, I have a decent memory, so I've been able to remember a bunch of those things. But I'm always sort of horrified. Somebody said, well, I did this class and I, you know, I sat through it for a whole semester or a whole year. And like, I don't remember anything about it. That was three years ago. That was kind of time you utterly wasted. I mean, it's, you know, if you did that class just because, well, then you can get this credential to do that, to do that, and so on, that's a that's a sort of an unfortunate situation. I mean, it's like, and what I found is people who were actually interested in the classes they were doing, they tend to retain them. They, even if even if they did that class just sort of out of curiosity, because like I've always wanted to learn something about you know the history of ancient Egypt or something, even though what I'm really going to do for a living is be a chemical engineer or something. Um, but, you know, I've always been curious about that and then take the class and it's like, oh, that was fun. That was interesting. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm ever going to be building a pyramid or something, but it was like, you know, at least the person was interested and, and, and quite possibly something they learned there, even if it's a meta thing, even if it's, for example, something like, you know, learning about history and how to learn about history. And then one day when they're the chemical engineer and they're trying to understand something about the history of some chemical plant or some such other thing, it's like, well, there was this kind of meta idea about sort of how you explore history that they got from the, you know, from the ancient Egyptian class. Um, and that's that's kind of how it comes out. And, and I think, I mean, I should say another thing, which is I think that that kind of often classes teach things if you if you do them well, so to speak, they teach things which are more meta things than uh, sort of things for themselves. I mean, I know, for example, um, I remember when I was a kid, I had some Latin teacher who was um, who most of the kids really couldn't stand. Very precise person, very kind of meticulously precise person, and I sort of didn't know it at the time, but I was I kind of liked that. I you know, it's kind of like it's fun to do things to perfection, so to speak. And, and that was a useful kind of meta discovery. I, uh, many years later, I was I opened up some some modern Latin dictionary and found out that teacher had actually written that dictionary. So so he was a, a person of of some um, uh, of some kind of um, uh, had, had done quite a bit in the in sort of the classics area. But in any case, the the um, but you know the sort of meta thing of that was just doing something precisely. It's the same with you know, things like math education, where part of what is being taught there is not so much, oh, can you really understand how you know, this calculus thing works or whatever, but it's more just, can you do something precisely and kind of uh, get through to the, you know, if you do it precisely and you go through all the steps correctly, you'll get a right answer. 
And it's kind of like, you know, if you write an English essay, there's not really a, a right answer. It's kind of like you can write a good essay, a bad essay. You can have an essay nobody understands. You can have an essay, et cetera. But that's kind of the, um, it's a little bit different. I, I would say, by the way, I think that um, uh, sort of writing computational language, not uh, to some extent standard low-level programming, but to an even greater extent, kind of writing computational language is a great thing for kind of getting this mindset of kind of thinking about things precisely and being able to formulate them precisely because the computer, independent of the teacher telling you that was a good job, you know by whether the computer understood what you wanted and did what you wanted, whether you've done the right thing. Um, let's see, maybe a couple more, more questions. Let's see, I, I'm, um, uh, there's a, the, I guess this question that came in here was asking about getting to undergraduate education, level of education earlier. You know, if you're ready for it, you should do it. If you're not ready for it, you shouldn't. And, you know, there are people who can be force-fed sort of uh, uh, much fancier education uh, early. I, I have to say, I don't think that usually ends well. I think that people, I mean, in, in my own case, there are areas where I kind of, uh, you know, kind of got to the, you know, college level in you know, physics-y areas when I was like 12 or 13 or something through my own kind of reading books efforts, uh, although I'm sure there were lots of holes in what I knew at that time and maybe still today. Um, but uh, uh, it, it was something where that was very much a, a me-driven thing. No, nobody, even, nobody even knew I was doing that, let alone kind of that was a, yes, you can do it. You know, go take the AP, AP+, plus, et cetera, et cetera, class. Um, that was just a, I was interested in it, I did it. Um, I would say that when people are in that mode and they're kind of accelerating because they want to get to the other side, so to speak, they want to do it, um, I would say that I've seen that end well many times. In the case where it's like people say, look, you're capable of doing this, you can jump further, you can do this extra thing, I would say that that uh, often ends quite poorly, and I would say that's, that's generally, uh, sometimes it's okay. But I would say I, I don't think that's a spectacular kind of approach. Um, now that isn't to say go do things you're totally bored and and uh, you know don't you know if you're ready for that thing and that's the natural thing to do and it's not a huge stress and it's not like oh my gosh am I going to be able to do this and somebody's pushing me to do it and so on then fair enough. But I, I don't think that the sort of accelerate for the sake of it strategy is uh, is a particularly good strategy unless you are really driven. To, to do that as, as I happened to be when I was a kid. Um, but uh, you know, the idea of, of yes, in principle, you can sort of, uh, you know, there's been this whole inflation that's happened. You know, first there were people just doing high school classes. Maybe the high school classes kind of regressed a bit and got simpler, but then there was like, oh, well, you should actually be doing, you know, you should extend, you should be doing college classes. You should be doing, you know, research projects, internships, all these kinds of things. And, you know, yes, if you're motivated and you're really interested in that and you're really going to do, you know, your own thing in those areas, but in, um, uh, you know, as a, as a kind of for the sake of it thing, I don't think it's a win. And I've actually seen it end quite poorly uh, with people where, you know, they went through education tracks very young and, and then they were like, oh, but I forgot to have fun or, oh, but I, uh, you know, whatever, I, I, I think, um, um, uh, you know, if you want to do it, do it. If somebody else is telling you to do it, 
think twice about it would be my my um uh my comment on that um okay there's a um um it's a comment from parmenides uh but didn't my former friend richard Feynman, who was a physicist studied mayan hieroglyphs at one point yes he was he was very much of a um uh as a very uh much of a kind of puzzle problem solving kind of person and uh i i sometimes when i was um uh working at caltech where he was um his longtime assistant would sometimes say to me you should go and talk to him you know he's he's bored he's working on mayan hieroglyphs again um and uh so i think it was it was kind of a uh, you know it was a it was a hobby kind of uh project for somebody who is mostly a physicist but i think you know to me these kind of hobby projects whenever uh, uh you know i i get a lot out of my hobby projects i mean you know whether like these live streams that i do this is a hobby project of mine and uh you know you will get me to think about all kinds of things that i don't usually think about don't usually talk about and that's very helpful to me in terms of understanding myself and and things better and i i found that um uh these things where you know one of the things that can go wrong sometimes is uh you know is this project worthy of me so to speak you know i've i've achieved a certain amount i've got to a certain point it's like oh this next project it's too simple or it's too you know it's sort of too uh too sort of beneath one I've seen that being a big career mistake for many people to to always say you know I've got to this point now I have to do something that's a step up so to speak that's not been my point of view I do things that I think are interesting and even you know without thinking are they steps up or down or whatever I try to think sometimes whether they're things where you know I have something unique to contribute but I don't really think about is this going to be a bigger achievement than the last one or a smaller achievement than the last one um because what I found is that Uh, you know i get out of i get a lot out of uh doing any project uh sort of well and i learn things that turn out to be useful almost always for subsequent projects i do or for subsequent you know as you learn more you kind of get to knit it together with other things you know and uh and 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 uh, uh and end up with more value for the other things you're doing um the question here uh from Martin can an old dog learn new tricks can a middle-aged person learn math programming and be successful anywhere near someone that started when they were young i think so you know i'm i'm continually trying to learn i'm a, i'm a horribly old dog and i'm continually trying to learn new tricks um there are things where i kind of know myself pretty well by this point and i know these are tricks i'm just never going to like or i'm never going to be that good at you know you say to me learn the trick of being on a committee and uh you know uh, managing sort of the the consensus conclusions of the committee maybe i could learn that i'm you know i know that's something i'm not very good at and i just don't put myself in that position because i know it's not something i'm very good at um i think when it comes to you know i'm i'm continually trying to learn new fields it helps that i've learned a lot of others previously but i think one of the things that that can happen is Uh, and i would say about sort of career development and and people is that that uh you know there's you and what you're interested in and how you develop and there's the world and what it's interested in and how it develops and there are these opportunities that come up in the world you know now there's blockchain 
Then there's, you know, now there's social media. Now there's, you know, professional e-gaming or whatever. There's some, you know, all, all these kinds of things that are niches that didn't exist before. Um, and uh, the, the world has delivered some niche that just didn't exist. And you might be 50 years old or 60 years old or whatever. And suddenly the world has delivered this niche that's a fantastic fit for you. And yeah, you know, if it had delivered it when you were 20 years old, well, that might've been nice too, but it's still, that niche is such a good fit for you that that's gonna be a huge win. And in fact, perhaps the fact that you're getting into it at age 50 something or whatever is, might be, might be better. You might have more judgment in general about things. You might, um, might be more able to be consistent in working on something and so on. But the world has been convenient enough to deliver to you a thing that is now a good fit for you. I think that um, uh, you know that that's one dynamic I've seen many times, and I've been you know I've I've been fortunate enough to start a few things that were kind of you know provided new kind of methodologies and, and opportunities in the world, and what I've often wondered is you know when you provide these new opportunities, are all the people who go into it going to be young people? No, it isn't the case. It's there's a spectrum of ages, and because there are people where for whatever reason. Well, either this is a niche that they always wanted. They didn't imagine that such a niche existed. Maybe none of us did. And suddenly the niche arises and they say, that's a great fit. I'm going to do that. Um, or alternatively, they have realized more about themselves. They learned, well, I was doing this job for a while and I just don't, you know, I'm just not excited about it. And then they start doing some other kind of job and, and they realize, gosh, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, really excited about that. And, um, they kind of, it's like, you know, do you, uh, uh, do you wake up in the morning and are eager to go to work? Or are you like, oh, well, it's Thursday today. And I'm, I guess that means I'm doing this and this and this. Um, you know, if, if that changes, if, if you find something or, or you finally realize that, well, I thought I should be an X, but actually I've kind of lost interest in that, then, you know, that's the time to try and do something different. Now, often it's complicated because people have all kinds of commitments, financial and otherwise, um, and it, it can be quite tricky to, to sort of make a change in, in uh, um, you know, later in life just because of that kind of practical lock-in. You know, I think what one sees, what I've seen, is people who do the, the sort of secondary thing as a hobby for a while to the point, and, you know, one of the things I, I see is people who say, oh, you know, I really want to do this thing. Like I really want to work on, let's say, science or some such other thing, but actually I'm a, you know, a lawyer for a living or something. And, um, uh, you know, and you say, well, you know, do you have any spare time? Well, yes, I do. What do you do in that spare time? Well, I don't know. I just kind of hang out. I watch television, whatever else. It's like, look, if you're really interested in, in science, let's say, whatever it is, you know, uh, stamp collecting, whatever it is, um, you know, why aren't you spending some of that sort of uh, extra time doing that hobby? And it's like, well, I'm just not that enthusiastic about it. Okay, that's not a great sign. It's, um, you know, just jump in and do it. And, you know, cut the television, do the hobby. And then it may turn out that if that hobby is something that eventually could be, could turn into something you do for a living, maybe over the course of, you know, a few years, whatever, you get to the point where you understand that hobby well enough. Maybe you it's something where you can kind of make a name for yourself in that or whatever else it is. 
And then you say, okay, now I'm making enough money writing my science fiction novels or something, I can quit my day job. Um, but you know, start doing the thing you really want to do as a hobby. Um, and you know, there are very few things that are just undoable in if you're not doing them as a quotes full-time job. Of course, there are things where you know you don't get well, even things where you're uh, sort of, I was going to say, you don't get to sort of do, I don't know, experimental particle physics or something as a hobby, but I bet you could. I mean, I bet that if somebody, you know, who was, oh, well, I'm a, you know, a data scientist who uh, wants to jump to experimental particle physics, I bet if you started kind of volunteering to do, you know, data analysis for this, I, I bet you could find a way in, so to speak, and you'd learn what the what was going on in the field, and you might very well get to the point where it's like, where the, uh, you know, the people there are saying, please, please, can you come work with us? And, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the way to make that transition. But I think in, um, uh, you know, this question about sort of, are there times in life when you're sort of capable of learning and others where you're not capable of learning? I don't think so. I think it's more a, a question of, of, um, uh, of, of kind of, uh, you know, tenacity and attitude than it is a question of, oh, sorry, your brain shut down. Now it's, you know, the, the learning period is over. Yes, there are things for, you know, our immune system and things like that, where, you know, when we're sort of early teenagers or whatever, you know, those, that, 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 that's just a, a biological sort of phenomenon that, that, you know, we've, we've changed how our immune system works, let's say, but I don't think that's the case for learning stuff with um, with brains. At least that's not been not been my experience. Um, and and maybe you know maybe it helps that I've continued to learn things throughout my life, and I haven't sort of gone from oh now I'm done with learning, you know now I can go into the non-learning phase, so to speak. Um, but I I think at least my impression is that um, uh, that that's not the case. And it's also true that people who have been doing something for a while. They've got some expertise in something. And the question is, how do you apply sort of the meta expertise from that to, I mean, let's say somebody has been doing some clerical job that is very procedural. And it's kind of like you, you know, papers come in, you do this, you do that, and it goes out. Well, you get a rhythm of how you do that. And then if you say, well, I want to switch to being a programmer, there are plenty of kind of things that start off pretty procedural like that, but they're about programming rather than about clerical work. And the ability to kind of say, I'm going to take this in in the morning, I'm going to do crunch, 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 get it out, that stands you in very good stead as you know, a certain kind of programmer, for example. So taking that kind of meta-learning from one area and being able to apply it is, I think, a, a, a win you know, particularly if the other area is one that that um, you suddenly get get interested in, and uh, you know, I think the following the interest is is a good thing. Um, well, maybe one more, and then I should should go here. Um, yeah, I'm, uh, a lot of interesting questions here, and I'm not sure that I can do any of them justice quickly. Um, Erin uh, is asking about innovations which would be most useful for the K-12 public education system in the U.S. Oh, boy. That's a, that's a really complicated area, which I don't think I understand that well. I mean, one of the things to say about sort of what skill... So, first of all, people learn certain skills. And by the way, the skills they've been learning haven't changed in thousands of years. You know, the, the scribal schools of ancient Babylon were teaching, you know reading, writing, arithmetic, and uh, 
you know, things like that. And, you know, there are certain skills that are needed to sort of operate in today's, in any, in society that, you know, people learn in school. Now the question is, what else should they learn? And the one skill that is clearly a, an emerging skill is this whole computational thinking, writing computational language, this kind of thing. That's a skill that sort of the people who will be at the leading edge of, of a vast array of fields, perhaps the, ma the majority at least of fields, will be people who have some degree of familiarity with that. And it's, uh, that's something that unfortunately the, the, the education system has had a hard time kind of adapting to. You know, there've been multiple waves of people trying to teach low level programming, coding, et cetera. You know, I, I think, I mean, it's sort of, uh, uh, it's something I, you know, I have to toot my own horn because it's something I've been sort of uh, working towards for 40 years of building a computational language where it's sort of a bridge between what we humans can think about and what we can get computers to do. That's a way of representing what we think about computationally and, uh, and, and being able to, to get computers to help us, so to speak. That's the whole sort of idea of orphan language. It's the whole idea of making kind of a quite different level of interaction with, with uh, technology than we've had with traditional programming languages, which really cater much more to tell the computer to put this foot in front of that foot and do this, rather than represent the world as we think about it computationally in such a way that you can kind of come up with computational conclusions and, and get sort of things done computationally. I think that this kind of idea of get to the point where you can think computationally about things, which is different from do low-level programming. It's like the difference between drive the car and know how the car engine works, so to speak. Um, and I think that the uh, that's a skill that clearly in the future you know, I can plainly see over the decades where, you know, I've watched people use the technology we built and so on to become leaders in all sorts of fields. It's kind of like, that. Oh, that's cool. That, you know, that really works. And that's something where that should be part of education. It isn't yet. It's, you know, they're little baby steps here and there and have been for, for several decades now. Um, but it isn't a thing that's there. How to get it there? Well, that's very challenging because it's, uh, you know, public education in a sense, was you know it, it it started in the U.S. what late 1800s, um, and uh, uh, it, it kind of there was a certain set of subjects and expectations, and although the details have changed, it's kind of like that's been what's what's gone through, you know that's what's there today. And to say well, there's this whole other thing that should be part of this, it's not an easy thing to fit into that. Now you know that there. there are, there are pieces of public education, you know, originally public education in different countries existed for different reasons, you know, participate in the democracy, be ready to be in the military, you know, these different kinds of objectives. And sometimes there's a, you know, there's this whole question about sort of to what extent are you sort of providing basic tools to be part of society? And to what extent are you kind of expressing the, uh, the kind of the preferences of society and education and sort of teaching kids how they should be proper sort of uh, citizens in your view of what a proper citizen is in country X. And I think there's something of a, of a, uh, a challenge there. The U.S. is a bit, uh, you know, the, the, the U.S. with its sort of different pieces of private education and so on, there's, there's more of a patchwork of, of how that works. But that's definitely an issue of, of to what extent is education about kind of give the person individual tools and to what extent is it about sort of, you know, how do you fit into society as society is 
with the various preferences of society and so on and, and do the right thing in this situation and that situation. And I think that's a, you know, that's a challenging piece. Another thing that can tend to happen is this idea, well, so, so for example, another thing is like, should people learn facts in education? My belief is absolutely yes. I mean, you know, I find it super useful that I know lots of facts. Um, it's, it provides the, the framework in which I can think about things. If I didn't know facts, I would be just sort of flapping around making generalized statements about things. Maybe I'm doing that in these live streams, I don't know. But, but, um, uh, but without, um, you know, without being grounded in any sort of re factual reality, and I think that the, the the sort of tendency to you know don't teach facts, don't teach sort of anything definite, in uh, but just sort of teach generalized ideas. That, in my opinion, is a mistake. The generalized ideas come after you have this whole bunch of facts and specific knowledge and so on. Then you can come up with the generalized ideas, and the generalized ideas make sense to you. But otherwise, you're just like I'm floating in this in the sea of generalized ideas. And um, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not, um, uh, and I can't really see how to attach them to anything. And it's, it's hard to kind of go forward from that. Um, and um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the idea, I remember when I was a kid reading some book about the future, they had this picture of uh, teaching machines. And the, this was 19, probably mid 1960s. Um, and uh, the uh, I was a young kid, and um, it was kind of like that's the future. The future is going to be, you know, education is just going to be like a, a vaccine or something. You know, it's coming almost like there's this machine that just sort of you know teaches you, and then you you've learned everything. Turns out that didn't work out so well. Turns out teaching is quite a human activity, um, and that uh, uh, and that's something perhaps even in this pandemic. Uh, we learned even more than than we knew before of kind of uh, sort of as you make it more remote and so on, it becomes more and more difficult for people to have, you know, teaching is partly a, I would say, a, a kind of a, uh, a you know, a, an encouragement, coaching kind of activity of, you know, get people to believe that they can do things and and get people to to realize it's possible to do this or that. I mean, I, I think, you know, the other thing, of course, that the, the, the big elephant in the room of public education is all of the kind of metrics and testing and uh, you know standardized tests and so on. You know, I, I don't even know what's going to happen with all these colleges saying they're going away from you know requiring standardized tests. So what does that mean they're actually going to look at? You know, is is that are they really going to read the resumes? Are they really going to uh, you know, or are they going to then turn into well, it's actually about GPAs and in classes and in high school and so on? Maybe that's better. Maybe that's worse. I don't really know. But um, it, it's uh, the idea that the uh, you know that amazing kid who would do so well in this college, but was in this you know kind of high school where they didn't get on with it very well, or it was a kind of a, a you know very poor fit, lousy high school, whatever. Um, you know, being able to find them and how that works, I'm not really sure how that's going to work. Because actually, in some ways, it's easier for that kid to just like, you know, ace the SAT, even though they've been in this, you know, high school where none of the teachers care, and, and it's all terrible, and the kids are doing terrible things and so on. But they, you know, that that's a, it's almost easier than than to say, well, I'm going to get all these grades, these fancy grades in high school, when the high school doesn't even offer, you know, fancy classes and so on. But, um, uh, you know, I, I do think that the, I mean, the, the thing that, um, uh, 
you know, where, where again, it's like there's this particular, you know, target you're trying to hit. Oh, I want to do, you know, I want to, you know, do well in this particular exam or whatever else. Um, uh, you know, for some people, that's a good motivating factor. For other people, it's like awful. And, you know, all it means is that they become kind of these, um, you know, uh, the you know the racehorse with the blinkers. I'm not sure. They, I don't think racehorses have blinkers. I think that's that's for for avoiding distraction for for horses with carts and so on. But but you know it's kind of like you're just running this particular track. Don't pay attention to anything else. I mean that that's kind of the um, uh, uh, the 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 thought there. And I think that's. I mean, look. Another thing I would say. Okay, my my last comment perhaps here is that the level of busyness of typical high school students, and particularly in, in sort of the more fancy elite type schools and places and so on, it just amazes me. It's like, like uh, you know, my gosh, this person is busier than they probably, you know, if they stay this busy all their lives, they're either, uh, you know, they either sort of brought, themselves on, brought that on themselves and it's kind of crazy, or they're really doing something they really like doing and that's great. But, I think too much of the time people are busy in high school just because there are all these things they're told you got to do all this extracurricular activities and do all these AP classes and do all of this and that and the other. And pretty soon, and I've seen plenty of examples of this, it's like the poor kid has no time to think about anything. They're always just like, oh, I've got another homework due. I've got this, you know, sports event. I've got this music thing. I've got this to do, that to do. And they're just running from one thing to another. And yes, there are occupations where that's what you'll do for your whole life is just run from one thing to another and you never really have to sort of sit and think. But I think it's a shame that people in that period of uh, er part of life where, I don't know, I think it's, it's kind of, uh, uh, you know, you, you have one of the advantages of, of uh, sort of the high school thing or, or even the college thing is you don't, in a sense, have, it's a time of life when you probably don't have, depending on your circumstances, but the chances are you don't have a huge number of responsibilities and, and things where, you know, you have to do that. You, you know, people are depending on this or that thing to be done. Uh, it's kind of an opportunity for one to sort of uh, learn a bit about oneself and think about what one wants to do rather than just be infinitely busy with all kinds of things. Anyway, that's, I, I think it's a, it's an unfortunate feature of um, and now, now, having said that, of course, there are kids where they don't have any idea what they want to do. And if you don't give them a lot of stuff to do, they'll just molder in some way. And in those cases, it's 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 probably better for them uh, to you know have lots and lots of stuff to do. But I think it's a shame when I see that among kids where where I where they do have all sorts of, well, I really want to go and explore this and explore that, but I can't do that because I've got 75 pieces of homework to do. So anyway, that, that's just my, my two cents worth on that. Um, I think that uh, um, in, uh, uh, yeah, all right, I better, I better go here. I think I'm late to something else. Well, very nice to uh, be able to chat with you guys. And um, it's a pity these are so one-sided and, and I, I always enjoy sort of uh, talking to people. And, and um, I think I may have learnt, um, I, I may have, uh, uh, you know, learnt the monologue too well. I don't know, maybe maybe when uh, the world opens up even more and I'm out and about, I will be incapable of any conversation that isn't a monologue, I don't know. But anyway, it's, it's, um, uh, uh, it's interesting to see your questions and comments. And I um, should wrap up here. Uh, I remind people, 
in terms of my live streaming hobby activities. On Fridays, I do a science and technology Q&A for kids and others. And on other days, there are a variety of um, live streams that are mostly related to either science or my day job um, of uh, software design and so on. And I'm, I bet, I haven't looked at my calendar, but I wouldn't be, I would suspect there's one of those um, uh, coming up tomorrow. So anyway, thanks for joining me here and uh, bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.